Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by First Baptist Church. Here at FBC, it's our mission to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, and we hope that this message helps you continue to grow in your faith. This audio is property of First Baptist Church, but feel free to give away copies of this message in the hopes that others will be impacted by what they hear. For more information about FBC, or if you want to stay connected with us, visit our website at fbclloyd.ca or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks, and enjoy the latest from FBC. Hey, hey, hey. All of you haven't guessed, my name is Jaden. Some people call me Bame. Doug introduced me. Um, it's been a sweet summer. Today is officially the last day of my internship with the church. Um, they took my key away and everything. I can't believe it. Uh, I was actually up in the library all summer. Some of you just found out the church has a library. It's great. Go check it out. I actually didn't do any work all summer, basically, because I was just so consumed with those Christian Amish romance novels. <laughs> just so deep. I, I still can't believe she chose Ishmael, you know? Like, he was not worth it. No, it, it's, it's been an awesome summer. Um, I've been staying with my brother, and he, and he has these three boys. And they're pretty cute, um, but they're also three boys, so they're pretty crazy, and that's probably my favorite part about them. Um, but they, they always, I, I don't know if girls do this when they're little as well, but definitely brothers. They, they always try to get ahead of one another, be better, or rule over. Um, so, for example, if, if my sister-in-law, she's getting mad at the oldest one, Tayson, he's nine, if, if, if she's like, Tayson, you can't be like doing this and this and this and this and blah, 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 at supper. Then Taylan, he's six, he'd be like, as soon as there's a pause, he's like, Mom, I love you. <laughs> I love you so much. Look, I ate all my rice. <laughs> like, he's just, he's like, oh, I see my brother getting in trouble. <laughs> you know, like, just kick him while he's down. I, they're, they're always competing like that. And some, sometimes, you know, it's like fist fights and stuff because they're awesome. But uh, other times it's more stuff like that. And it never actually works because my sister-in-law and my brother aren't dumb. You know, they're like, oh, you need to stop doing that because that's a bad thing to do. And, and, and sometimes it's easy for me to be like, ah, oh, yeah. Me and my older brother, Stephen, we were never like that. Um, my mom is here. She's probably laughing to herself right now. Uh, he is eight years older than me, was way bigger than me for so much of my life. It was so brutal because every single time we try to fight, I would just come so close. Well, it felt so close to me, but really, I always got destroyed. You know, he'd pin me down with, with his knees on my biceps, and dangle spit above me, <laughs> let it dry on my face, or, or tickle me until I'd like pee my pants. One time he rolled me up in a carpet, and I was like, this is like cartoon stuff. Like, who gets rolled up in a carpet? And my mom would always say, she'd say, Stephen, you better watch it because one day, Jaden's going to be bigger than you. And then payback is going to come. So I always held on to that shred of hope that one day, one day, I'd be bigger than my brother. And lo and behold, at the ripe old age of 17, I was taller, 
and I weighed just a little bit more than my brother. I was like, finally, I can kill, I, I mean, overpower, rule over my brother. And I remember the first time this happened. It was in between the summer of grade 11 and grade 12. And we went to go wrestle because we're just grown children. And um, it's worse. He's like 25 at that point. Come on. Uh, and, and we go to wrestle. And, and like right as soon as we started to fight, I was like, wow, we're equal. Like it was equal for I didn't lose immediately. I was like, what? <laughs> this is awesome. Finally, I'm going to destroy him. You know, like, instantly evil. Um, and, and I was so excited. And I, I totally won. Okay, if, if anyone asks, don't ask him. He doesn't remember. I won. I won. And I've won all the fights since. But no, I was just so excited. I could finally rule over. And I think we all kind of have that desire to rule over, to have power over things, to have authority, to feel strong. And sometimes that plays out in a lot more violent ways. If you've been following the news lately, throughout northern BC and across the prairies, there have been two teenagers on a killing spree. I think they've murdered three people and someone's gone missing. They desire to have power, and their enemy is life itself, existence, being. And to rule over that by killing. But in the end, really, we don't, we don't actually have power over these things. And it, and it leads us feeling empty and, and honestly powerless. And so we keep, we keep going and going. Maybe once I get this next promotion, I win this game. I do better than those employees. Once I can beat up my brother, yes then I will be happy. But, but no, we, we still feel powerless. We don't feel fulfilled. And it's meaningless. It's hopeless. And so what are we to do? I think the book of Hebrews has something to say about this and the way that we need to live in order to find meaning and authority and rule and power. Um, but before we start reading that, let's just pray. God, I thank you so much that you have given us a way that we can draw close to you, that you've shown us a way to live that is fulfilling and meaningful, that has hope. And so, God, I pray that as I speak today and I speak from your word, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see what is being said and that it would impact our lives so that we can leave this place changed and live for your glory and for meaning and purpose. God, please speak through me today. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All righty, so we're going to be in the book of Hebrews today. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 to 10. If, there's, if you don't have a Bible, you can use your phone, or there's Bibles in the pews in front of you if you want to follow along. So, uh, first, though, uh, I, I just want to kind of go around some of the background of the book of Hebrews, because it's one of my favorite books of the Bible, partly because it is shrouded in mystery. Okay, we have no clue who wrote it. Some people say, oh, it's Apollos. Some people think it was Paul preaching a sermon, and then 
Luke wrote it down after I had a prof who believed that. I was like, how do you get to that? But nobody knows. We have no clue who wrote this book. We can, we can guess, based on some of the language and stuff, that it was probably a sermon that was written down later and expanded upon and sent out as a circular letter to some of the churches. The audience was primarily Jewish. Uh, there's deep use of the, the Old Testament, and there's so many references back that we don't catch um, because, frankly, we, we aren't Jewish. We're not as steeped in the Old Testament as they would have been. And so as we, as we come today, um, right before Hebrews chapter 2, there is, uh, it, the, the book begins with this great pronouncement about who Jesus is. And that is that he is the final and full revelation from God, that he's superior to the prophets, the law, and the angels. And then it continues on, and, and it's talking about the, the new creation to come, and, and what it means that Jesus was fully human and fully God, and what it, what it even means to be fully human. All the while referencing back to the Old Testament, and, and just working in all this great imagery. Uh, it's probably one of the greatest sermons of all time, so much so that four sentences of it, is, four sentences of it today is going to take us 30 minutes. So, uh, but yeah, let's dive in and we'll read that together. So verse 5, it is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking, but there's a place where someone has testified. What is man that you are mindful of them, a son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. But we see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Because of the suffering of death, is crowned with glory and splendor. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. So that's the whole thing. We're just going to start in verse 5. So we'll go right back to that. It says, It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. I know all of you guys woke up this morning thinking, man, I wonder the world to come. Did God subject that to angels or to humanity? Is Jesus superior to angels? Oh, I don't know. That's so confusing. All of you woke up with that question, right? Don't worry. Since you're so interested in, in what the world subject, is going to be subject to, the writer of Hebrews tells us, not angels. And I think when he says the world to come, sometimes we think of heaven. And we think of heaven as, oh, we're all going to be angels and floating around in clouds and looking like weird babies and playing harps. And... No, I... I really hope not. That's terrible. The, new, the world to come is the new creation. When, when things are made right again, when we are restored in both relationship to God and to each other. When, when the world is free of sin. He's talking about the world to come. God doesn't just make a new world, renew creation, and then hand it off to some spiritual beings, to angels. No, it's for us. This world to come isn't just, just this thing that he hands away. It's for us. It's to be subject to us, for us to rule over. We are meant to rule. And then he continues, and he quotes Psalm 8, and he says, But there 
is a place where someone has testified. And what he's doing right here is kind of like a callback. It's like a pop culture reference almost. Like if I were to say, um, come on down, dude, what am I talking about? The Price is Right, thank you, the best game show of all time. Everybody knows that. Or for the front row maybe, um, if I said, get out of my swamp, what am I talking about? Shrek, exactly. One of the greatest works of art that this world has ever known. And so this is what he's doing, and he, he's referencing a little bit of it to purvey the meaning of the entire psalm. So we're just going to go Psalm 8, verse 1, we're going to read that together. It'll be up on the screen, too. It says, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens, and through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Or human beings that you would care for them? And so the psalmist here, he's been, he's been looking at nature, he's been looking at creation, and thinking, wow, this is beautiful. He's reflecting on Genesis 1, God creating all of this. I don't know if you've ever looked up at the stars in the night sky and thought, wow, I am so small. Thousands of light years away are these, these giant burning balls of gas, and I am this mere speck of dust in the scheme of it all. And he looks at this, and he looks at the forests and the lakes, the deserts, the ocean. He thinks, man, I am so small. God, what is man? that you could possibly care for him. And even compared to God, he is so small and so powerless. How could you possibly care about man? How could you possibly give him any authority or rule over anything? And then he begins to reflect on the fact that we are made in God's image. To reflect on that we, we have been given authority to rule, to subject creation to ourselves. Let's read the rest of the psalm together. Verse 5, you have made him a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. <clears throat> Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So he's looked at all of these things, and he sees that he's small. He's like, wow, God, I can't believe that you'd give us this responsibility, this privilege to rule over these things, that they're subject to us, that they're under us because we are made in your image. If you remember in Genesis at the very beginning, when he makes mankind, he says, let us make them in our image. And then he gives them authority and power to rule over the rest of creation. And that's their responsibility. And now sin entered the world. We sinned. And we ruined both that relationship with God and the authority and the rule over creation that we have. It, we don't have that anymore. This is, this is the in the garden, free of sin, this authority that, that we have. And, and the writer of Hebrews even reflects on this, starting in the middle of verse 8, he says, In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. 
Yet at present, right now, we don't see everything subject to him. How true is this? I was walking up these stairs probably two weeks ago. I'm kind of clumsy. I, I like to think I'm not, but I am. And I was walking, and you know when you like step just a little bit too far, just over the step, and then it bends your toes back? And it's the worst pain imaginable. I, like I couldn't believe it. I was walking with like a limp for a week. I just look really stupid. People are like, oh, what, what happened? Are you okay? Is your leg broken? I'm like, almost. Like, I sprained my big toe. <laughs> Creation is not subject to me. I can't even walk upstairs. Another example, um, when I left for school, um, my mom compensated by buying a puppy. And then that wasn't enough because puppies could never replace me. You know, I'm pretty great. So then she buys another puppy. So then there's, there's two kind of puppies at the same time. They're both under a year old. I know what you're thinking. I'm worth three puppies. That's what I told her, but she didn't listen. And, and so there are these two puppies. And then I come home for the summer after my first year and I'm working. And training two dogs at the same time is kind of hard because if one of them pees on the floor, you can't, like, hit it because you don't know which one it is. You're trying to teach them to go inside, and it's like, oh, one of you peed on the floor. Do I, like, hit, like, all of your noses, or do I just, like, try to figure out which one it is by, like, the smell or something? Like, I don't know. What do you do? So then I'd come home from work, and their favorite spot to pee was in this hallway leading to my room, and we have dark flooring, and there's no windows in that hallway. And so you have to turn the light on when you walk in. And I just never would because I'm stubborn and silly and I repeat my errors over and over. So I'd walk in. And my sock is just like wet with pee, which is the greatest thing. <laughs> and I have to take off my sock, throw it in the laundry, wipe my foot off. And then I have to clean up the pee and, and it would just drive me bonkers. I went crazy. Almost every day I was coming home, I was stepping in pee, and I was like, you know, I could just turn on the light, but I, I'm not that smart. Creation isn't subject to me. I can't even train two dumb dogs to not pee where I like to walk. Creation is definitely not subject to us currently. And then the writer of Hebrews reflecting on the psalm, he says, but wait, it isn't actually about you. It's about, it's about a perfect human, a human before the fall. He says, you know who else we have to look to in this? Jesus. He says, verse 9, but we see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, so that by the grace of God, and he's quoting this psalm, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and splendor. So we see Jesus, this perfect human, this archetype of what it means to truly be human and be created the way God wanted us to be. And everything is subject to him. Everything obeys him. The wind and the waves. We see Jesus, and, and he's this example of what it means to be truly and fully human in the way that God created us to be. Because when we sinned, when, when sin entered the world, we became subhuman. We became unworthy 
of working God's will in the world. And it's only through Jesus' sacrifice and his love for us that we're able to do that again. God had partnered with us, and we forsook that partnership, that covenant. We threw it back at God. We, we became less than what we were created to be. We traded our high position in God's creation for a low one. And then he continues. Well, I guess in that same verse, he was made lower than the angels. So when Jesus came down to earth, he, he left heaven and came down to earth so that by the grace of God, and if you don't know what grace is, grace is something that is given to you that you don't deserve. Something good that is given to you that you do not deserve. That he might taste death for everyone. And we all deserve death because of our sin. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. That because of our sin, we actually don't even deserve to live. But instead what happens is Jesus, he tastes that death for everyone for all believers, so that their sin would no longer be counted against them. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, the cost is cleared. They're free to come into relationship with God again, to live lives worthy of being called human. And because of the suffering of death, Jesus is crowned with glory and splendor. So if Psalm 8 is about ruling over the animals and being crowned with glory and splendor, Jesus is showing us a new way to rule here. It's not by making them submit to you. It's not by killing them. The way to rule and have authority and power, according to Jesus, and according to who he is, is to suffer and die for your enemies. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, verse 10, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer, the founder of their salvation, perfect through what he suffered. And so in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, that's talking about some people, if you've been in the church for a while and you think of glory, you might be thinking, oh, that, that's heaven. He brought many sons and daughters into heaven with him. Or, or maybe that's, that's salvation. I'm going to argue that that is actually them fulfilling the task, responsibility, and privilege that God has given them. That he has brought them in to live what they were created to do. To be in relationship with God, each other, and to rule over creation. To have authority over it. That it would be subject to him. The glory is that, is that we get to live fulfilling lives. The glory and the splendor that we receive is that we get to rule and have authority. And now, in this, it says um, it was fitting that God, it was appropriate for whom and through whom everything exists should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through suffering. And I, I think pioneer or founder isn't quite a great translation for that word. Because the, the word there is archegos. 
Do you guys want to say that with me? It'll be fun. Archegos. So three, two, one. Archegos. See, you guys are paying attention. You guys are scholars, gentlemen and a scholar. Um, <laughs> and so the, the word is archegos, and the most common time that that is used during this current time is in the myth of Hercules. And I don't mean like the lame Disney Hercules who is like a nice guy and lifts really strong things. You know, like, that's lame. I'm talking about the brutal killer Hercules, okay? I, if you guys know the myth, Hercules is driven mad and into this crazy rage, and in it, he kills his entire family, his wife and his three kids. And so to atone for that sin, for the, the murder, a king gives him ten labors he must complete. And let's just walk through these, okay? If, if Hercules is the archegos, he's told to kill a lion, but this lion isn't a normal lion. It has to be killed with his bare hands. And then he's told to slay a hydra, this multiple-headed monster. He has to capture a sacred deer, capture a giant bull. Along, along the journey to do that, when he actually kills a whole bunch of centaurs, he has to clean these crazy stables, and, and a king cheats him out of his share of the herd of those stables. And so then he vows to kill that king. He's a pretty violent guy. He has to kill these monstrous birds. He has to capture the Cretan bull. And as a side quest on that quest, he actually wrestles with death itself and wins. Hercules defeats death. And after he does that, he has to steal some man-eating horses, and he feeds their master to them. He has to steal an Amazonian belt, and then he kills the Amazonian queen and a whole bunch of Amazonians. He just kills so many people. And then he has to steal the cattle from the king of Spain. He steals these golden apples, and then he brings a three-headed dog from hell to the king. So just like your average everyday stuff, you know? I'm sure we've all done half of those things at least. And there's just this train of violence and killing and stealing and deceiving. And afterwards, when he tries to settle down and live his life, he can't. His temper gets the better of him, and he remembers all of those who have wronged him. He remembers the king who cheated him. And, and along the way in doing these things, he, he made a lot of enemies too. And so they're all trying to fight him, and he's killing so many people, he's always at war. And eventually they get the best of him, and although he defeated death before, death has the last laugh, and he's poisoned by accident by his wife. And he's killed. So Archegos means hero or champion. Hercules is, is this crazy killing machine. Defeats all, all evil and all of his enemies. Defeats death itself. And Jesus is the archegos, the hero, the champion of our salvation, made perfect through what he suffered. <laughs> and unlike Hercules, death didn't have the last laugh when it came to Jesus. He defeated death and made a mockery of it on the cross. And some of you guys might be thinking, ah, I actually don't have a taste for power, for ruling, for having authority, for being great. I just like to live a simple life. And I want to argue against that. How many of you have either seen or know somebody 
who's seen Avengers Endgame? I saw it. It's a great movie. Yeah, probably most of us, right? The, it, it became the number one grossing movie of all time, like last week. So many millions of dollars. And I remember I was going to the theater. I was super excited. And in the first like, 10, 15 minutes, they break into the bad guy's house from the last movie, they kick down his shack and stuff, and, and they go in, and they just cut off his head with like a big axe. And I'm like sitting there in my seat, I'm like, woo! You know, like I'm pumped. I'm in the movie theater, I know you're not supposed to talk, but I was like, they did it. They cut off his head, like I'm, I just wanna like get up and like run around, like if they could pause the movie for a second so I could celebrate. They did it, and, and these guys are the cream of the crop of humanity. You know, we've got like Captain America, and Iron Man, and Black Widow, and Hawkeye, and stuff, and it's, it's just so awesome, so cool. And I was so pumped, I was like, they did it. They killed their enemies. And, and I know some people who went back and saw the movie like three or four times, because they, they loved it so much, and, and we all love movies like this. Any action movie, that's a plot. You kill your enemies to overcome them. You rule over them. We all have a taste for ruling and having authority and having power over others. But unlike the Avengers, our authority and our power doesn't come by killing our enemies. We don't rule over our enemies by destroying them. We rule over our enemies by following the example of Jesus. And what does it say? That the pioneer, the archegos, the champion, the hero of our salvation is made perfect through what he suffered, through death. To rule over your enemies is to die. To be humble, to be made low. If there's one thing, one thing, the bottom line of today that I want you to walk away with is that if you want to win, die. If you want to rule over your enemies, die. Follow the example of Jesus and die for your enemies. Lay down your life for those who persecute you. And this is hard. I don't know what this looks like in your life. Maybe that means when your spouse comes home and they've had a bad day at work and they're mad and they shoot off some comment, you don't shoot back. You take it. You die. Maybe that means if, if your boss at work is just being a jerk, the worst, that instead of going and talking bad about him to, your employee, to the other employees, instead of going and doing that or doing a bad job to sabotage him, you just let it, ha let it happen. Let it go. You die. You humble yourself. You love that person so much that you don't even fight back. For me, it meant that, that when I... <laughs> Like, I, I don't even fight my brother. That's what that means. That I just die. I don't wait until I'm powerful enough to overcome him. I just die. I be humble. 
I lower myself. I don't always have to win. But in fact, I always will because if you want to win, die. If you want to rule, if you want to be over your enemies, have power, then die for them. If you want to live a life that is fulfilling, to escape the rat race of meaninglessness and hopelessness, then be humble. Think of yourself less and others more. If you want to win, die. Make others more important. Lift them up. And this is hard. This might change your entire perspective on life. I know a lot of the times I think, man, if anyone gets in my way, I'm just going to bulldoze right through them. Because I want to win. I don't want to let anything get in the way of my success. I'm very competitive. But if we actually want to live to be fully human and perfectly human in the way that God has made us to function and be, then we, we need to die. We need to follow Jesus' example and die for our enemies. Love them and be humble. Let's pray. God, you are so amazing. We love you so much, and I, I thank you that, that you have created us in a way that we can love our enemies that is so counterintuitive to how the world thinks. I pray that as we go through this week and the rest of our lives, that you would show us that the way to have victory over our enemies and to rule and to have authority and to have power is to be humble and to die. Thank you so much for saving us and for allowing us to have a relationship with you. Bless us as we go throughout our week. I ask this all in your son's precious name. Amen. Thank you guys so much. Have a great week.